0: Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck.
1: Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one.
0: It is the Mass in All Access podcast, Paul Mancano and Bobby Blanco, as always. Bobby, how are you doing? I'm doing great,
1: Paul. We're in a different location this time, usually in the warehouse, now down in the auxiliary press box at Camden Yard. It's kind of cool down here.
0: It is cool, literally very chilly Chilly, as well. And now we're joined by guest Dan Connolly. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. You've been covering this team for a long time, covering them with the Sun, and then eventually your own website, baltimorebaseball.com, and now making the move to the Athletic. It's been a long journey with this team, and we are now in a a dark period, I guess, of Orioles baseball, so we'll touch on all of that uh, coming up and some of the great pieces that you've already written for The Athletic, Uh, but first let's start with uh, one of your more recent pieces, uh, talking about Cedric Mullins uh, and his rise through the ranks, the Orioles uh, discovering him first as a prospect and then uh, his rise all the way up until the big leagues. Uh, it's a fascinating piece for those of you who haven't read it. Um, what would you say, I guess, some of the things that you learned from that piece going in? Yeah, I think the, the thing that struck me first is the relationship with the scout that he had
2: with uh, mm-hmm. Rich Morales, who's one of the Oriole scouts, and, and honestly, how Morales found him. I mean, that's what you know, kind of cracked me up more than anything else was when um, you know Morales wakes up one morning, in Blacksburg, Virginia, he gets up early at 6:30 in the morning. Starts looking at the schedule, see what's going on around him, and realizes that there's a junior college uh, like tournament, like a, a playoff tournament, mm-hmm. in uh, Kinston, North Carolina, which is four hours and 40 minutes from where he is. And you know, he he thought about it and did the math and thought, well, if I leave at seven, I can get there, you know, around the first pitch. So he did, and he drove very quickly. He wouldn't tell me exactly how fast he <laughs> yeah. drove, but he drove very quickly. He got there in the second inning of the game, mm-hmm. and instead of going behind the uh, the plate and where you know scouts usually sit to watch pitchers, he decided just to go up to the third baseline some so he could kind of watch uh, the hitters a little bit better. And he said there was a left-handed hitter, really the first guy he settled down to see. And he said he was a little guy left-hander who bit on a curveball or a breaking ball and missed it, but had enough strength and recovery that he still hit the ball and hit it off the wall, the base of the wall. Right. And he said – he just was like, who is this kid? What yeah. is going on? And he immediately called – well, actually, he watched two more innings and realized that this kid, who ended up being Cedric Mullins, was the best kid on the field. Yeah. And so he decided to basically contact uh, you know, his, his boss at the time, the National Cross Checker, and uh, you know, said, hey, I, I think I got something. The guy's like, I'll be on a, on a plane to Kinston tomorrow. And that's when they first scouted. Cedric Mullins. That's so it's kind of a cool story. It actually took him a, a full year to sign him after that, mm-hmm. because they didn't sign him in 2014, and they waited. And in 2015, he went to Campbell, did really well, was a uh, you know a uh, um, second team All-American in, or second team All Big South, and that's when they really decided to go for it.
1: Another interesting thing about that piece I thought was kind of insight into Cedric Mullins' mind, of him being a young kid coming up through high school and then uh, college. He went to a two-year school, I believe, first, um, and then that's when he started getting looked at. He decided he didn't want to go pro, and then he also didn't want to go to some bigger schools like Clemson and North Carolina, who were looking at him because he already built this relationship with another college coach and decided to go there and play. Um, and I kind of learned about that's a lot. For a young kid to say, no, I'm, I'm, this is what I've decided to do. I'm going to stick with this. Um, I'm, this guy has had my back. And that's also kind of the relationship he built with his scout, um, Morales. And, and now he like, has a big relationship with the Orioles.
2: Yeah. And, I, and it's, it's really interesting to me. And like, you know, he was 5'6", 158 pounds in high school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He was a, you know, sophomore year, he tried out for his varsity team. Now, this is Georgia. It's a really good area for baseball. Baseball tremendous, hotbed, yeah. Trem, you know, tremendous hotbed. And so he tries out his sophomore year, gets cut, and goes to JV. Junior year, he makes it on varsity, but barely plays. Mm-hmm. And then it's the senior year; he does well, and scouts are out there, but they're out there to see the star pitcher, who is Lucas Sims, who ends up getting drafted in the first round by the Braves. And so he really didn't get, you know, many looks or, or whatever. And again, he was, you know, he was five foot six in high school, five foot eight when he got to junior college, uh, 170 some pounds. And and you know, when people look at that, they, you know, they look for a prototype. And I actually talked to Rich Morales. I didn't put this on the. Uh, uh, story, but, we, but he and I talked about that, and he says, You know, you, 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 you know what you want, you know what the guy's supposed to look like, but you can't not look at other guys and say, Okay, well, he doesn't, he's, you know, he's under six foot. Yeah. Or he's not, mm-hmm. you know, you ha- baseball is one of those games where it takes all sizes. It's, you know, there's, there's, everyone has a different look to them. And it's not, you know, you have the prototype guy, but he may not be able to do it. and You have 6'4, right. 220 guy, but he maybe doesn't have the skills, or maybe he doesn't have the drive. And this kid's drive was off the charts. And he said, you know, Morales said, and it was kind of interesting to me, he, he shook his hand, and he said it was like one of the strongest handshakes he's ever had. He, yeah. said, he, he said it was like putting his hand between two bricks. <laughs> like, so, and he's like, wow, this kid. And the kid looked him in the eyes the whole time. He's like, So he, that day, Morales said to, the,
0: to Mullen's parents, your kid's going to play in the majors one yeah. day. I love it too because personally, I'm always been called short my entire life. I'm five foot eight. I'm his height, right. so I can imagine how he feels being a professional athlete and going through all of that stuff. And I love the little anecdote his dad talked about putting logs on the fire. Right? You know, whenever somebody says something bad about you, you get cut from a team, anything. You have your fire, and you put your logs on to just kind of. Ignite your motivation and keep you going through that whole thing. I also loved, and this is you know a topic that has been covered uh, a lot as he's gotten to the big leagues. But Mullins' relationship with Adam Jones um, mm-hmm. has been nothing but uh, mentor mentee at this point. Um, do you see that continuing to grow, even if Adam might not be with the team next year? You know
2: the way Adam is, I could see it. I mean, you know, Adam doesn't when Adam becomes friends with somebody, when Adam gets a relationship, you know, he's always, you know, he texts guys back and forth. He's, you know, he, he definitely is an involved guy. So, I mean, obviously it wouldn't be to the same extent. Yeah. You know, but but these guys, a lot of these guys still contact, still stay in contact with old coaches or with, you know, former players and stuff. They all go back and forth. I know, you know, some of the, uh, the guys who recently were traded, they all had a... a Chat group or a text uh, group with uh, mm-hmm. Ryan Flaherty, and they were going back and forth with him every time he did anything down in Atlanta. They so these guys do keep in touch, yeah. And I think that that will probably be the case as well. I mean, you know, Adam takes pride in that. He takes pride in in being a mentor, being a leader. Uh, and, and I think that the way Cedric went about it as well, you know, very humble about it, mm-hmm. um, I think that helped with, with Adam. I think if Adam felt it was some kid that was trying to show him up or whatever yeah. it would be, it might be a different situation, but I think he had the right right personality for it as well.
1: And, and Cedric obviously understands the situation he's coming into. The Orioles, not the worst team in baseball, let's just say they are, And but Adam Jones has been here for a long time, and he's been the face of this franchise ever since he got here, um, and he's going to... You know, be one of those Orioles that this generation of Orioles fans will always remember. Oh, I remember Adam Jones, and now Cedric Mullins has to come in, kind of put his feet in those cleats, so to speak, and then go out and try to be that kind of lifelong Oriole or the guy who brings his team out of this dark period is that too much pressure to put on a young player like Cedric Mullins or is, do you think he's got the stuff to handle it
2: no I think it's too much pressure yeah <laughs> I, mean, I think that's just a whole lot to yeah. put on a guy I mean we don't you know we don't know what Cedric Mullins is going to be right. I mean he's batting 269 AAA is he you know will he be able to hit from both sides of the plate he's a switch hitter but you know the right-handed side is is his, has been his weakness so we, we end up as a platoon guy? obviously his defense is going to keep him in. Yeah. I mean, there's no question he's a good defensive player and so he that should be able to keep him around. But we don't know. We don't know what he's going to be. I mean, obviously he like, you know, he's talked about the chip on his shoulder and I think that that obviously does motivate him and maybe he becomes the player that you're talking about. But I here's the thing, I don't think, you know, when when the Orioles did the rebuild and such in 2007, 2008, 2009 and it finally you know, took hold in 2012, there really wasn't one guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Marquegas had been there, and then Jones came in, and then, you know, Britain slowly came up, and then, you know, Tillman came up, Weeders. and you had Wieters yeah, and, you had, and then Machado comes up in 2012. So it really was a lot of guys together. And, and you know, I, I don't have the stats on this or anything, but, I mean, when you talk to players, having a core and having that core group come up together, win together, like, yeah. the, like a lot of these guys did in the minors, and then come up, they expect to win, they know each other. And I think that's, a, that's really important, and I think that that's what the Orioles have to do now. Yeah. You know, they have to develop these guys. You know, pretty much every one of the teams in the minors this year is not going to make the playoffs. I mean, right. Norfolk has a chance, I guess, still statistically. And I guess Aberdeen maybe is still in the in the hunt. But for the most part, it doesn't look like any of these teams are going to make the playoffs. They need to, you know, winning is not all that important as far as, you know, development is the most important thing in the minors. But I think getting that taste, understanding it, and coming up. And, you know, the Frederick teams, the
0: Bowie teams that had those guys on They Mm won. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of those young guys and developing those young guys, you wrote a piece of believe, earlier today talking about some of the guys that we could see for those September call ups. We've talked to Steve Molesky about some of those guys. We went down to Bowie and talked to some of those guys. Who do you see potentially being on this team in September coming from Bowie or Norfolk?
2: Well it's funny because we're now getting the sense that maybe even Josh Rogers is gonna be pitching tomorrow. So right. that would be that would be a guy right there. I yeah. mean it's gonna be someone um and Buck kind of hinted it wasn't gonna be Luis Ortiz, so someone mm-hmm. has to start tomorrow. Uh and so Rogers who is part of the Machado I mean I'm sorry, part of the Britton trade mm-hmm. um, you know, likely will be uh be up here. I think we'll see Luis Ortiz. I would imagine we would they have to put him in the uh, on the forty man roster, I believe. Um so that would make sense. The guy who really intrigues I me mean, most of the other guys Honestly, Paul, are, are probably going to be guys who we've already seen here right. for the most part. Um, you know, if they want to bring up Austin Hayes again, he's, you know, he's obviously on the 40-man, and he was the guy that was up uh, in September of last year. Mm-hmm. The guy that intrigues me and I hope gets the call, and, and, and we'll see, is Brandon Klein who is a great story. He's a local kid. Yeah. Um, you know, Talk about perseverance and going <laughs> yeah. through that kind of stuff. And so he uh, you know, he's went through injuries. He was a second-round draft pick at the University of Virginia, like I said, from Frederick. And he has reinvented himself as a reliever, and he's done yeah. exceptionally well for himself. And so I would imagine, I, I hope that they end up putting him on the 40-man, uh, because frankly, they're going to have to do the same thing with him. He's going to have to be... Uh, Put on the forty man or be eligible for the Rule Five draft in December anyway. So yeah. why not bring him up, get him a little bit of a taste, and and you know I have another good story for for September. Yeah,
1: yeah why not? And uh, so this Paul, the this piece that Paul mentioned is part of Conley's Tap Room on theAthletic.com, which I love that just idea a bit. Like you're the bartender and the, the readers <laughs> are there. Your uh, Patriots, I guess, coming just drinking and talking about baseball. It's a lot of fun. Um, I was reading through the comment section. You had asked your readers to comment with uh, who they thought can come up, and uh, some other names popped up. Um, what other names do you think, besides, I guess those are your two Ortiz and Klein? What other names would you say maybe are your second tier players you might want to see up here?
2: Well, I think Hayes is definitely a guy that that could possibly do it. Um, You know, it's interesting because you know DJ Stewart's a guy, yeah, and everyone we've been hearing about DJ Stewart for years. He was a first round. Is it about
1: time we find out who DJ Stewart is? is. That's the
2: question. I mean, he, he, you know, he's hitting two thirty four at AAA. So is that you know, do you wanna reward him for hitting two thirty four? Or do you say, hey, you know, he had a three thirty one base percentage, you know, he's had ten steals and ten or twelve home runs and so we're gonna see what he can do and we you know, there's an opening in left field. I think you really have to figure that out. You know, one of the the one player that everybody wants to see, and I've been kind of clamoring and and like you said in in the Connolly's tap room, is Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I don't I think it would be a mistake. He's 21 years old. Uh-huh. He's still learning a position at third base. Defensively, he's, he's, you know, he still has a ways to go. Yeah. And he's got a bat, and he could hit here potentially. But I think when you bring these guys up, you want them to succeed. Right. You know, and, and, and I believe with Mullins, he was ready. He was ready to succeed. He was yeah. already, you know, he obviously has hit well and stuff, and who knows how it's going to go. But he was ready to come in here and do something. Yeah. Right? And I'm afraid with Mountcastle, you know, if, if you're putting the defense in with the offense – and he starts making mistakes in defense, then that's going to affect everything. Kind of crush the confidence. And it's funny because Buck has said, and this is something I've believed for years, and and Buck says this over and over again now as well, is that you, you look at these players and decide whether they can handle the majors defensively. Yeah. Then you bring them up, and then you see what you got offensively. But very rarely does a guy who's just killing it, who's just raking it offensively down there, come up, and continue that pace if the defense isn't there. Right. Because that's really one of the big differences between the minors and the majors is just how good everybody else is defensively. And and it's funny because I mentioned this on on the Bar blog, and someone said, oh, he can't be worse than Tim Beckham. Oh yes, he can, <laughs> and, and people, you know, and people were saying the same thing about moving Manny Machado off a shortstop. Right, and, well, right. you know, he, you know, Beckham's no worse, and he was, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and so, and I think that's something that people have to realize is that there's a level we're used to seeing here, yeah, and whether it's from J.J. Hardy or the Machado afters or, or whatever it might be, and. You know, this guy is just—he's 21 years old and he's just learning third base. Yeah. Let's relax it a little bit. Now he's batting 295 or whatever in Double A, and the guy can really hit. And I've met him, and he's an impressive mm-hmm. young man. But. I mean, let's give him some time, and I don't think this is the time for it. He's more of an Arizona Fall League guy for me. Yeah,
1: these are always. That's always a question: is like, can these guys handle being thrown in the deep end? And right. defensively, he's way harder than you know, continue to hit. So yeah, yeah. Right. It's and, a tough question.
0: And you mentioned his age. I mean, he's 21, yeah. and I think he's the youngest or second youngest. He is right there with uh, Ryan McKenna as, in terms of the youngest guys on the Bowie, well, roster. Bowie roster. yeah. So there is time to you know, no need. To, I, I understand your point. No need to rush them right. when uh, you have that time. But, but s- you know what, fans get.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, they want
0: to see and they want to see the hope
2: and they want to see the guys come up here. And I totally get that. And I'm, I'm on board with that. But you want to see him stay here yeah, yeah. it's not seeing him come up. I mean you know Austin Hayes came up and he struggled yeah. right and then he went back down and you know in the next year got hurt and he also struggled again. yeah and now he's starting to hit better. but it's hard to make Absolutely. that jump and I, I think you want to give them let them be as ready as they possibly are before you bring them up.
0: yeah uh, Switching over from young guys to veterans, uh, one of your more recent more interesting pieces that I loved was about uh, the Danny Valencia uh saga i guess you could call it him uh you know being placed on waivers and ultimately the, the team not finding or dfa rather than the team not finding a deal for him um before they eventually had to cut ties with him you brought up some interesting points that uh bringing up his past especially that he had built up kind of a negative reputation as being uh, a b- bad guy in the clubhouse and as somebody said a clubhouse cancer What were some of the things that you unearthed when talking to players, whether it was with the current Orioles or other front office types around the league about Danny Valencia? Yeah, it it strikes me because, you know,
2: here's a guy who's bat who hits 310 against left-handed pitching and good left-handed pitching. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a small sample size, but he absolutely crushes David Price, who (laughs) is going to be pitching in the playoffs, you know, and... Um, you know, he, he hits uh, Dallas Keuchel very well. And and so you would think that there is a market for him. Yeah. And it's funny because as it was, you know, they DFA'd him and I was hearing nothing, no buzzing whatsoever. And it struck me because in July when I was calling talent evaluators from, from different teams mm-hmm. and, and talking to them about what they're hearing and, and involving the Orioles, I brought up the Danny Valencia name. And immediately people were like, nope, don't want him. Nope. <laughs> And the one guy even said to me, one of the Italian evalu- evaluators from another team said, he's a clubhouse cancer. And he's bounced around. Yeah. There's no question. When he came to the Orioles the first time around, I believe it was in 2013, um, they, uh, you know, he, he, had a, he had a certain, it was, it was 13 or 15, I remember. It was one of the, one of the non-playoff years. And, mm-hmm. and he definitely had a swagger to him. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and there was definitely a, you know, there was one player that said to me, like, a you know, the U, University yeah. of Miami kind of swagger. Yeah. And, you know, and then he had an altercation in Oakland with Billy Butler, uh, which, you know, Butler ended up being released, and they ended up saying that it was, you know, that Butler was the instigator. But that kind of stuff hangs with you. Yeah. And so he didn't, you know, he had a decent year last year with, with Seattle Mariners, didn't get a job, was in the uh, free agent camp in in Bradenton, and the Orioles, you know, signed him to a minor league deal. And it's funny because when we first met him at the minor league, you know, when he said that day in spring training – I asked him the question. I said, "You know, would you be willing to play in the minors?" And he mm-hmm. said, "No, no, I'm here to make the major league team." Yeah. And we walked away. He we said, "Well, he's he still got that confidence." Yeah. Yeah. And he was right. Mm-hmm. He was a major leaguer, and, and yeah. he, you know, and he was a you know a suitable major leaguer for the Orioles. Now, obviously, there's no real place for him at this point. When you're you know when they brought up Mullins and they DFA'd him. Yeah. But it, it does strike me that we're five days away from you know the, the September 1st, August 31st time where you have to be on a roster or you can't be in the playoffs, and Valencia, as far as I know, still does not have a job. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think it is it, – it's funny, that piece probably did as well as almost any piece that I've done so far for The Athletic because it is one of those things that you really don't think about that aspect of it. But while he was here in 2018, all the players got along with him. They thought he was a good guy. They, you know They thought he was a good teammate. Um, he was fine with the media, perfectly fine, you know, yeah. good with the media. So, you know, it's one of those things that things stick with you, and you get stuck with them, and then suddenly, you know, it might affect your employment. Yeah. And, and that's where we are, I think. Yeah.
1: And this time of year, the most coveted things are lefty arms and lefty bats. And he's like... Guy who <laughs> crushes lefty arms, so you, you figure it was spot. I like the comparison you drew with Steve Pierce, another guy right. who's bounced around and he's been crushing it with the Red Sox, so he has a job. But now Danny Valencia can't find one, oh, right. so it's an interesting and, and thing. And
2: Steve Pierce has a reputation being a good, of being a great clubhouse yeah. guy, and yeah. he is. I mean, you know, I, mean, I dealt with Steve several times, and he's a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. But that's his reputation that brings him around. Right. And you know, and you can look at certain indicators that say that Valencia is better against left-handers now. You know, there's more power and, and other things there with Pierce, but I mean, there's no reason some of these teams that are, that are hitting 240 and 250 against left-handers and are in the you know in the the playoff hunt yeah. aren't interested in Danny Valencia. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I mean, he may sneak under there, but
0: five more days left, and if he doesn't, then what's the point? Because you know you're not going to yeah, you can't you know, use you know, him in the, the playoffs. Yeah, Dan, you're obviously somebody who's well versed in Orioles history. You've been covering this team a while, and. No, it all the way ways back. Um, So I I wanted to bring up this season in particular because uh, obviously the Orioles are on pace to hit 100 wins for I believe the third time in in franchise history or 100 losses rather for the third time in franchise history Um, and especially coming into the season that had higher expectations than a last place finish in the division. Where does this team and this year rank in terms of the worst Orioles seasons of all time?
2: First of all, Paul, I'm going to say that lead up just makes me sound old. Yeah, it? I was going to say yeah, don't age me. You're He's our guest, this Paul. Is, this is my this is my 18th season covenant team. team. I did you know I, I wrote a book about the history of it as exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah. Hundred so things kinda, to right. do and uh, uh, yeah. yeah what was it hundred, hundred, hundred things uh,
0: to know and do? Right. As a as every Orioles fan, yeah. yeah. Um, before they die, yeah. Yeah. Part, yeah. Which is not my title. That was a, kind of a
2: morbid, morbid title. But you know, honestly. This is by far the the worst season from beginning to end that I've covered, and I covered from oh one to two thousand eleven, which were all losing seasons. Mm-hmm. Those are my first seasons on, so it's the worst. Now I did cover a team in two thousand two that lost thirty two of its last thirty six games, and that was terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, as bad as this August has been, I think they're like five and sixteen or five and twenty one or something like that. Yeah. I mean, four and thirty two was disastrous. <laughs> yeah. But the difference, the two differences. From that team to this team is, you know, this has pretty much been from the beginning. I mean, they've been bad, you know, they've yeah. struggled since, you know, end of March, beginning yeah. of April. And, you know, obviously the fire sale gives you really no hope for the year either. I mean, you, you know, basically their best players, they sold off. Yeah. So it's, it's ugly. And I mean, you know, they're, they're on pace for 116 losses. Um, there's only five teams in the history of baseball who've lost 115 or more. You know, There hasn't been a team to lose 120 since since the Mets in in 1962, and and the Orioles are at least within scratching distance of that. Um, And it's really hard to do. And one of the things, and I I wrote a piece with, I talked to Dave Dombrowski, who's the uh, GM of the Red Sox, and he was the GM of the the 2003 Detroit Tigers that lost 119 games. What I didn't realize about that team was they actually had 118 losses with six games to go. And so they were staring right in the face of the 120 losses of the Mets and they won five of their last six yeah. <laughs> and ended up with 119 losses. So yeah. I didn't realize it. In fact, they've actually m- misspoke it and thought they won five in a row, but they actually won five of six to make it happen. So you never know what's going to happen. But it really, as far as comparisons, I mean, I wasn't around for the 88 team. You know, I didn't cover that yeah. team, but – Obviously, it was terrible. But they start out 0-21, and this team is going to blow away their loss total, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is a record, for, you know, franchise record for 107. So I would think this has to qualify pretty much in every way you look at it as you know the worst season in Orioles' history.
1: Yeah, yeah kind of in recent history, the 2013 Astros lost 111 games. Obviously, four years later, they won the World Series. Now, it's obviously a lot of the expectations. But what timeline in this rebuild, I know it's literally just starting, but what timeline in this rebuild do you see the Orioles should aim for to start competing again?
2: You know, no one wants to put, like, no one in the organization wants to put years on. Right. Right. But, I mean, I would think that rebuilds are a three- five-year process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, three on the early end, five on the on the late end. But that's what you want. You want within three years to be seeing something. And it's funny because I talked to, to Matt Klintak at length about this, who, you know, helped take over the Phillies. Yeah. And they were thinking three to five years. And within three years, they're already where they need right, to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it obviously can add some pieces and things of that nature, but they're already competitive for the division, you know, two yeah. and a half years after their rebuild started. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you'd like for that to happen. I mean, obviously a lot of it has to do with your minor league system. You know, the Orioles added 15 guys, you know, 12 of whom had never played in the majors before in a three-week period yeah. in yeah. July. Yeah. So that's a whole lot of players adding in there. And you, you want to hope that some of those guys – come together and do things and, and you know it's you know going back to what Paul had said as far as the history is concerned you know you go back to the draft the Brian Roberts draft where they had seven picks in the first 50 and you thought they were going to completely retold the the organization and Roberts was the only one that stuck yeah you know and the other other five or six guys never Larry Bigby was one of them but all the rest of them really never made any impact at all with the Orioles. So. You don't know. That's the reason they call them prospects, because you don't know what the situation yeah. is. Yeah. But you have to hope that you're putting the guys in the right positions, and you, know, you, you have the right people scouting. You have the right people going through with the international. I mean, you know, we didn't talk about the international, but that's a huge thing here. Right? Yeah. It's something that the Orioles are saying that they're going to
0: you know, go after now, and they have to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, they have kicked off the rebuild, and we could see some of the fruits of that in the next month, potentially. Just a glimpse into the future, and then years down the line. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely, guys. It was
1: fun. Yeah. At Dan Conley 2016 on Twitter. Give him a follow and check him out at theathletic.com.